Okay, everybody, welcome back to this week's episode of How Is This Movie? I am joined once again by great friend of the show, Jim Hempel. Jim, how are things today? Great, thanks for having me. Absolutely. Thank you for doing this. Now, this is going to be episode four in our series that I'm calling Icons, where we look at a particular actor or a particular filmmaker who sort of rises to the top. And this is an episode that I've wanted to do for years, and I just have not found the right time. But with an, an upcoming Tarantino film in the works, I thought, why not ask Jim to join me and we'll get the ball rolling. So, Jim, first question I have, as always, when we start these Icons episodes is, tell me what Quentin Tarantino means to you as a writer and a filmmaker. Well, I think, you know, he is one of those guys. I mean, to me, he's one of the three greatest directors of a certain generation, which is basically my generation. He's a little bit older than me. I think he's around nine years older than me. But uh, to me, Tarantino, Christopher Nolan, and Paul Thomas Anderson kind of stand head and shoulders above all the other directors of that uh, age range. And it's because all three of them, they just, they are, they reach so far. I mean, Tarantino, I just think the level of ambition that he shows and the leaps in ambition he takes from movie to movie are so astonishing. You know, it's, it's, it's such a huge question to say what he, what he means to me. I mean, it'll probably come out more as we talk about individual movies because individual movies kind of, uh, mean different things to me, you know, but I think, I think, you know, to a lot, I think initially what he meant to me is the same thing he meant to a lot of people, which was that he was kind of this film enthusiast, uh, who made it really big. I mean, you know, like, like many of, like you and like me and, and many other people, you know, he was this guy who was in love with movies who kind of slipped through the looking glass to the other side, kind of like what, you know, Peter Bogdanovich did in the late 60s and early 70s, where he went from from criticism into becoming a successful director. And Tarantino going from being this kind of, you know, video store employee and obsessive movie omnivore uh, to sort of, you know, turning that into, you know, turning it into his own movies was something that I found really exciting at the beginning, especially because he, you know, he gets this from people who don't like him he gets this rap as well. He just makes movies about other movies and stuff, which is complete nonsense. I mean, I think he assimilates, you know, everything that's gone on before him in, in film history, but then takes it to such new and interesting places. And I, and I, and I don't think he, I think he's so much more than just kind of a, you know, a movie geek, but to me, he's just, you know, as a filmmaker, I just find him, I just find him really inspiring because he's just so ambitious. I think the level of ambition in something like Inglorious Bastards, for example, you know, the idea that you're going to rewrite the ending of World War II in a movie that's part spaghetti western, part World War II movie, part love letter to the movies in general, and part hate letter to the way movies were misused by the Nazis. I mean, there's just so much going on in that movie. And he's such a master at keeping all those balls in the air that he juggles in these, you know, movies that kind of just, again, increase, become increasingly ambitious every time out. In 1987, Tarantino scraped together an estimated budget of $5,000 to make a 90-minute black-and-white film entitled My Best Friend's Birthday. What can you tell me about this? Because this is something that I have not seen. I've I've tried tracking it down, and I've found 30 minutes here on YouTube, and then, then it's taken down. But what can you tell me about 1987's My Best Friend's Birthday? 
Yeah, well, it was never really completed, so you can, in a way, only find it in weird fragments. There, there are bootleg copies of the footage that exists kind of floating around. You know, uh, they're, they're, if you, like here in LA, uh, if you go to independent video stores and kind of ask them, you know, they've, they've got, they've got bootleg copies under the counter. But it was never completed. I mean, it was a movie he, he, the, the problem was, that he made this movie as he could scrape together the money over the course of, I think, like two years or something like that. It was over a co- course of a couple of years. Him and his friends would shoot footage for this movie, you know, a few minutes here, a few minutes there, whenever they had the money for film and the time to, to shoot it. But they never had the money to process the film. So they shot like two years worth of footage and finally got it developed. And when it came back, it was all terrible, according to Tarantino. Um, you know, he said he got the footage back. And was just heartbroken that it, it, it just did not look like what he wanted it to look like. It, there was no movie there. And rather than throw good money after bad, he decided, well, that was my film school. I'm going to just say that was a learning experience. And he didn't really bother to finish the movie. He just kind of wrote it off as a, a lesson learned. And then decided his, you know, his approach was going to be to break in via writing. Because writing is something you can do without spending any money. And so... Uh, you know, his, his initial idea was he wrote True Romance, I believe, first, with the idea being that he would do it on a budget of a million or a couple million dollars, and he wanted to try to raise the money the way the Coen brothers had done on Blood Simple, or the way Sam Raimi had done Evil Dead, where they kind of went around to rich dentists and stuff and raised the money via limited partnerships, and he tried to do that, couldn't do it with True Romance. Then he wrote Natural Born Killers, which was designed to be an even lower budget, around $500,000, and tried to raise the money to do that couldn't get that to happen and so finally ended up uh writing reservoir dogs with the idea being that he would make it for about fifty thousand dollars like it was just okay here's a movie there's a bunch of guys in one room i can make this movie dirt cheap and during this period he started to get some uh minor paid writing jobs he worked for a company called cinetel which i'm not sure if they still exist but they were back when i first moved out to la in the early 90s they're kind of a big like foreign sales company and they would make these, they'd make exploitation movies. They'd do things like the poison Ivy sequels and they did movie like late night movies for Cinemax and things like that. And Tarantino went to work for them and he would get, you know, a grand here, a grand there to rewrite scripts like past midnight with Rugger Hauer. And, and, and he also, in that period, he, the, the, the uh, special effects company K and B wanted to get into film production. So they paid Tarantino $1,500 to write from dusk till dawn, which of course ended up getting made much later. Um, but anyway, so, and he was, he was sort of making some tenuous connections in the film industry. He had this friend, Scott Spiegel, I think was his name, who wrote the Clint Eastwood movie, The Rookie. And Spiegel would start recommending Tarantino for rewrite jobs and stuff. So he wasn't making a lot of money. But then what happened was he did manage to sell True Romance to Tony Scott for somewhere around, you know, Writers Guild minimum which was probably somewhere around 50 grand or close to it. So his plan was he was going to take the money that he made from selling True Romance to self-finance Reservoir Dogs and make it for 50,000 bucks. And at that point, he gave that script to, uh, he gave a script to a, a producer friend, Lawrence Bender, to read. And Bender loved it and said, look, we can get this made in an actual, like, real level. Don't do this on your own. And by that point, Tarantino, he'd been trying for years to get his own movie made. He really didn't want to wait any longer, but he gave Bender two months. He said, he said, if you can raise the money in two months to make this as a real movie, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll do it with you. And Bender happened to, through a, you know, through a couple of connections, was able to get the script to Harvey Keitel, who loved it. And then they were kind of off and running for, uh, 
Reservoir Dogs because Keitel agreed to help raise the money and help cast it and all that kind of thing. Take me around the buzz around surrounding Reservoir Dogs. Before was there a lot of buzz before the release, and then did it have a big release as far as like in the circles in in L.A. and in the, the the film festivals? I mean, how was the movie initially received? Well, it, it, it had a funny life because it wasn't a huge movie on its initial theatrical release. However, it was it it was like a huge thing around the film festival circuit. Um, you know, when it premiered at Sundance, it was it's it's kind of hard. You know, it's hard to believe now Sundance has changed so much. But at the time in 1992, you know, Sundance was not a film festival that was welcoming at all to genre film festivals. I mean, it was much more like kind of. Uh, I mean, Sex, Lights, and Videotape had been big there a couple years before, but for the most part, they were these kind of what I would call granola movies. Like, uh, I got it if you've seen the movie Leave No Trace that's playing right now um, with by Deborah Granick, the woman who did uh, uh, Winter's Bone, but it was more of that kind of stuff. It was these kind of, you know, earnest dramas about farmers and things like that. And Tarantino making this violent movie with language that was racist and misogynistic and all that. I mean, that was like a bomb being dropped into Sundance. I mean, it, it was, and so there was a lot of talk about it. Uh, and I remember there was a lot of anticipation for me. I saw it for the first time at the Chicago International Film Festival. And I remember I was dying to see this movie because there had been buzz about it at Sundance. There had been buzz about it. It, it played at Cannes. It went over very well there. Um, it was, it was going over really well at film festivals. And I remember the first time I read about it was in premier magazine. They had a film festival wrap up. I don't remember if it was Sundance or can, but there was just like a one paragraph description of Reservoir Dogs. And they described it as, uh, as though Martin Scorsese directed a remake of Ocean's 11, meaning obviously the 1960 Ocean's 11, because, um, the Soderbergh one hadn't come out yet. Uh, and at the time I was obsessed with Scorsese and I was obsessed with Ocean's 11. So this to me sounded like the greatest movie ever made. And I was dying to see it. And it, it played the Chicago Film Festival. And it's funny, I was, cause I, I looked up the dates on this stuff, knowing I was going to be talking to you about it. And my memory really deceived me because my memory of Reservoir Dogs is that I saw it at the Chicago Film Festival, loved it, and then had to wait months for it to come out. My memory is that I was telling everybody, you got to see this movie. And I was like talking to people and was going nuts because I didn't have anyone I could talk to about it. No one else had seen it. And I, and I, and I, and in my memory, that was a month, like six months. Well, it actually turns out it was more like two weeks. Like okay. I actually, I actually saw it in Chicago, the Chicago Film Festival in early October of 1992, and it was playing theatrically by the end of October. So I guess that shows how much of an impact this movie made on me that it just, that a couple of weeks felt like an eternity waiting to see it again, waiting to tell people about. All right, let me just say this out loud because I want to get this straight in my head. You're saying that Mr. Blonde was going to kill you, and then when we got back, he was going to kill us, take the satchel of diamonds, and scram. I'm right about that, right? That's correct. That's your story? I swear on my mother's eternal soul is what happened. The man you just killed just got released from prison. He got caught at a company warehouse full of hot items. He could have fucking walked. All he had to do was say my dad's name, but he didn't. He kept his fucking mouth shut. And he did his fucking time, and he did it like a man. He did four years for us. So, Mr. Orange, you're telling me that this very good friend of mine, who did four years for my father, who in four years never made a deal, no matter what they dangled in front of him, 
You're telling me that now that this man is free and we're making good on our commitment to him, he's just going to decide out of the fucking blue to rip us off? Why don't you tell me what really happened? What the hell for? It'd just be more bullshit. This man set us up. Dad, I'm sorry, but I don't know what the hell's happened. It's all right, Eddie, I do. What the fuck are you talking about? That lump of shit's working with the LAPD. I don't have the slightest fucking idea what you're talking about. Joe, Joe, I don't know what you think you know, but you're wrong. Like hell I am. Joe, trust me on this. You've made a mistake. He's a good kid. I understand you're hot. You're super fucking pissed. We're all real emotional, but you're barking up the wrong tree. I know this man, he wouldn't do that. You don't know jack shit, I do. The cocksucker tipped off the cops and a Mr. Brown and Mr. Blue killed. Mr. Blue is dead? Dead as diligent. How do you know all this? It was the only one I wasn't 100% on. I should have my fucking head examined going ahead when I wasn't 100%. That's your proof? You don't need proof when you have instinct. I ignored her before, but no more. You lost your fucking mind. Joe, you're making a terrible mistake I'm not gonna let you make. Come on, guys. Nobody wants this. We're supposed to be fucking professionals. I look. It's been quite a long time. A lot of jobs. There's no need for this, man. Let's just put our guns down and let's settle this fucking conversation. Joe, if you kill that man, you die next. Repeat, if you kill that man, you die next. Larry, we have been friends, and you respect my dad and I respect you, but I will put fucking bullets right through your heart. You put that fucking gun down now. God damn you, Joe. But the irony is that when it opened theatrically, it didn't do that, do that well. It didn't really have, it didn't make much of a splash. I mean, I don't think it ever played on that many screens um you know i think it was it it just kind of came and went you know made a couple million bucks but nothing you know comparatively like two years earlier uh miramax the same company that released reservoir dogs two years earlier they released sex lies and videotape and it on the independent film circuit you know it grossed something like 28 or 29 million dollars in america and much more overseas reservoir dogs made like two it was just it, it wasn't a huge thing it was very big in Europe. It played in England like nonstop for a year in theaters. Um, so it was big in Europe, but in America it didn't really do that great. But what it did do, it, but it got a lot of attention in the industry. Like people, you know, people in the film industry took notice of it. And, uh, you know, among other people, Danny DeVito took notice of it. And so his company, Jersey Films, was the company that hired uh, Tarantino to write. Pulp Fiction. Um, so I mean, you know, he was so he was he was certainly on his way uh, as a filmmaker, but 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 where it really caught on popularity-wise with the general public was on video. It, it was a huge VHS movie, and and there was something interesting that kind of happened in terms of the timing of all this, which was that you know, Reservoir Dogs came out wasn't really wasn't a hit theatrically. True Romance came out was not a hit theatrically. But by the time Pulp Fiction came out, both of those movies had really caught on on video. People had caught up with them. And so by the time Pulp Fiction came out, 
everybody was ready for it. And so then that one was kind of his big commercial breakthrough. Just take me through your first viewing of Reservoir Dogs. I mean, we're talking about some classic actors, some new faces, and a non-linear storyline. So just take me through what the experience was like for you seeing it the first time. Yeah, I mean, it can't really be overstated, the seismic shift I felt going on as I watched that movie. And I mean, now it's been imitated so many times, I don't know if... I don't know if someone watching it for the first time today would have the same impression of it. I, it's, it's hard for me to imagine. You know, I feel like it's one of those movies like Halloween that, that got so heavily imitated in the years following its release that, uh, you know, maybe maybe a young person watching it now for the first time wouldn't be as stunned by it as I was. And, of course, you know, it in and of itself was imitative of many other movies. But the way, you know, I always like to, to refer to this Godard quote, about ripping off other movies, which is, he says, it's not where you take it from, it's where you take it to. And Tarantino is really, you know, I've, I've used that, I know, on your show, I think about Paul Thomas Anderson, and, and Tarantino's the same way. I mean, Reservoir Dogs, on the one hand, part of the thrill of it was seeing all of these elements, these elements from other movies I'd love, like Ocean's Eleven, like The Taking of Pelham 1, 2, 3, like, uh, you know, gosh, I don't know, City on Fire, and all these, these, Hong Kong action movies and things, you know, he really, he, but, but, but that, that, that whole narrative structure, that playing with narrative structure, that whole idea of a heist movie where you don't see the heist and it doesn't matter. You know, sometimes I think it's a cop out when people say, Oh, well, what you don't see is more interesting than what you do. Or it's, you know, if we leave it up to your imagination, you know, so I'm not, I'm not nuts about that as an argument, but in the case of our dogs, it actually, you know, the only, the only time, I'm sure many other people have done stuff like that before, but but off the top of my head, the only other movie I could think of that was like that was there's a great Michael Powell and Pressburger movie, The Life and Death of Colonel Blimp, that I think came out around 1946 or so. And there's a thing in that movie where they talk about this duel that's going to be this huge deal and this central event in the main character's life. And then when they get to the duel, they show the two guys with swords, and then the camera pulls back and it cuts away from it. And you never see it. And Tarantino kind of builds an entire movie around that. Uh, can see and you know I sitting there obviously was right from the get go like many people that opening scene with the guys arguing about Madonna's like the virgin and tipping and all that stuff um, I, I was immediately like just who the hell is this guy who wrote and directed this thing and and again it had been done before like Barry Levinson in Diner and Tin Men had, had sort of established this idea of you get groups of guys together talking about pop, pop culture uh, you know, the Bonanza talk in Tin Men and, 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 and Diner is sort of a whole movie like that. You know, the opening scene of Reservoir Dogs is sort of like the whole movie of Diner. But what Tarantino did, I think, with it was, you know, it was such a great way in Reservoir Dogs of establishing those characters by ha- having them talk about stuff that wasn't anything having to do with them and yet it tells you so much about them because none of these guys will back down. I mean, that's kind of the premise of the movie is like, you've got, you've got this group of guys together who are so junkyard dogs who will not, they won't back down whether it's in a fight with the cops or a fight over what like a virgin means. And so that, that opening scene just, I mean, I felt like I was having an out of body experience in the theater when I watched that movie. You know, it's, it's, it's a cliche to say you forget you're watching a movie because like I don't really ever forget I'm watching a movie when I'm in the theater. But that movie, I really feel like I did. Um, that cut from the opening credits to 
Tim Roth in the back of the, the, the car bleeding. You know, I think that was the thing that really struck me about that movie was the sort of uh, disparate tones. The fact that you would go from the, the scene in the coffee shop that's this hilarious, uh, you know, comic scene to this sort of harrowing scene of violence. And then the whole movie just yanks you around back and forth that way. And, and that's one of Tarantino's, you know, you asked me before what he means to me as a filmmaker. Really the best way I can sum it up is what he means to me is he's the greatest there is at mixing things that shouldn't go together and making it work. I mean, I always think about the scene where Lucy Liu dies at the end of Kill Bill, volume one, when Lucy Liu gets the top of her head cut off. And it's simultaneously disturbing, funny, and a little poignant all at once. And Tarantino is just the greatest guy there is at taking those extremes. And Reservoir Dogs kind of announced that. It was like, it was like here's the guy who can give you a lot of the different things you go to the movies for in one movie, but they're, and they're things that don't necessarily go together. I mean, it, it had that sort of ironic distance in terms of the sense of humor and the dialogue. And yet there's also this real, I, I think it's very genuine, the, the way he deals with the themes of betrayal and loyalty and things like that. I mean, I think when Harvey Keitel shoots Tim Roth at the end of that movie, I mean, I guess there's a lot of spoilers here. I probably should warn people. I'm assuming anyone sure. listening to this prob- probably has seen these movies. But I think that final scene, um, I just think it's, I think Tarantino, you know, much like, much like Samuel Jackson's, um, spiritual conversion in Pulp Fiction is, I, I think is very genuine. I think the stuff, the, the bond between Keitel and Tim Roth is very genuine. And that's a whole other interesting thing about Tarantino is that he can have it both ways. He can have these relationships and these sort of philosophical explorations that are very sincere. And yet there's also this sort of ironic hip, uh, commentary on everything. I mean, he's sort of like if you got Godard and God, I don't know. It's like, it's like, it's like if, uh, Godard and, and, um, I don't even know who the other person would be that I would, I would, I would combine it with it, but it's like, but it's like, it's like Godard if you had the emotional authenticity and purity of, like Ozu or Renoir or something in, in the same movie. I mean, things that, things, again, things that shouldn't go together that do. And that's really what I was struck by the first time I saw Reservoir Dogs. And it was, it was really one of the, it was a really mind blowing experience, that first feeling. So Reservoir Dogs comes out. It's like you said, doesn't do, does practically nothing in the theater, does great on home video, true romance, does nothing. Like uh, just, just echoing the things you said. Mm-hmm. 94, I'm 16 years old. So I am at that age now where I'm I'm now driving and I'm now able to go to the movies uh, a lot more often. And even at 16 years old, I was aware of what Pulp Fiction was and its impending release. But I wonder for listeners that might be uh, even younger than I am, give us a sense of what the anticipation for Pulp Fiction was in 94. Yeah, well, again, I think... First of all, I don't know that the anticipation, it didn't feel as big as the movie ended up okay. being. I mean, I think, I mean, I think there was, there was certainly an anticipation among cinephiles. I mean, I think anybody who was in the movies was really looking forward to that movie because I think, again, by that point, everybody had kind of caught up with Reservoir Dogs. They had caught up with True Romance. Uh, I think Natural Born Killers came out, what, not that long before Pulp Fiction, if my memory is correct. Um, and so, 
he was everybody was kind of poised for that movie, and it did well. The anticipate there was anticipation in the sense that the movie won the grand prize at Cannes in May. Um, it opened that fall, and it was it it, it it had won the grand prize at Cannes. So there was anticipation again among cinephiles. There was a lot of anticipation for it. Certainly, I was dying to see it as somebody who had been such a fan of, of Reservoir Dogs. Um, but I don't think anybody was prepared for the fact that it was going to become the huge mainstream hit that it did. I, you know, I mean that movie. Uh, you know, that movie made over a hundred million dollars and it transformed the, it, not necessarily for the better. Um, it sort of transformed the independent film landscape. I mean, I think it was kind of like, it kind of had the effect in a way, it was sort of to independent film what Jaws and, uh, Star Wars did to sort of the blockbuster mentality in the sense that Jaws and Star Wars were both you know, those were both personal auteur films. I mean, Spielberg and Lucas weren't looking to, uh, you know, ruin movies or anything, but they kind of did because <laughs> those movies were so successful that they uh, created this mentality at the studios that it was no longer enough to hit a single or a double or even a triple. You had to hit a grand slam and you had to make movies that were, these you know, high concept movies to appeal to everybody. And Pulp Fiction sort of created that expectation a little bit with independent films. And it also... It also inspired a lot of very bad, or not bad, but, but certainly lesser imitations, uh, you know, for years. But, and, and I don't think anybody was prepared for that, including Tarantino. I mean, I think Tarantino, you know, he probably expected Pulp Fiction would be a little bit bigger than Reservoir Dogs or whatever, but that he would, you know, I don't think he expected to happen what would happen with that, which was that basically it made him instantly, on his second movie, he had the kind of clout and power and freedom that a lot of directors spend their entire careers trying to get and, and don't talk about because Pulp Fiction was not made on a big budget. Not at all. Right. Right. How do you get so many A-list celebrities in that film at, for that time? And and then I'd also follow that up with just briefly, you know, what this did for Travolta. Well, I think part of it is, I think he was very shrewd with Travolta. Um, you know, I think Travolta was, you know, Travolta at the, that moment wasn't what Travolta had been. I mean, he was still a star, obviously, but like his last movie that had been a hit was a few years earlier. He had done Look Who's Talking, and I think that was maybe 89 or 90. You know, Look Who's Talking was a big hit, but it wasn't a hit that was like very you know, respected or anything. It wasn't really a great movie. Uh, you know, Travolta, I think, I mean, I think the answer to your question about how he gets these, got those people was that that script just gave them things to do that other people weren't giving them to do. And I think, you know, I think that's how he's, his whole career has kind of been sustained on the fact that he is such a great, he's such a great writer for actors. You know, they just get, they get to say his, 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 they're such actorly movies and and actors look cool in his movies and they get to say cool things. And I think that's, you know, they just don't get to do it. I mean, even Bruce Willis at that time, you know, he wasn't, he was a big star, but he wasn't necessarily movies like, uh, the last boy scout weren't, you know, necessarily, they just weren't, they weren't giving him something to do as exciting as as that. But I also think Tarantino kind of shrewdly, the movie's kind of shrewdly written, uh, in the sense that you didn't need, any of those big stars for the whole thing, you know? So it's like he could shoot them out relatively 
quickly. You know, no, I doubt that anybody on that movie, I doubt that any of the stars had to work on it for more than a couple of weeks because of the structure where you had the, the, the multiple stories. I mean, maybe Travolta did and Sam Jackson. Um, and, you know, the whole origin of Pulp Fiction was that it, it was something he had thought about doing way before Reservoir Dogs. It was his, his idea was he was going to do it as like a series of short films so he could raise enough money to shoot 20 or 30 minutes and then ba- send that on to festivals and then based on that, shoot another 20 or 30 minutes and then eventually he, he'd plop all the stories together into a feature. But, uh, but I really think getting those actors, I think, was just as simple as, you know, there were certain people who he was going to get to come back because of Reservoir Dogs, like Harvey Keitel is in it and, and um, you know, Tim Roth or whatever. And I, I just think um, probably those actors saw what he did for Keitel and Roth and Madsen and all those people in Reservoir Dogs and thought they wanted a piece of it. But Travolta, you know, um, again, I mean, he was rel- sort of washed up at that point. I mean, so it was, you know, you know, Tarantino was smart. You know, Tarantino knew he had... The thing Tarantino has that a lot of people in this business don't is a good memory. I mean, that's where I think his film geek stuff really comes into play and is really advantageous to him. I mean, you know, the sense that, like, in this business, nobody else was thinking about putting John Travolta in a movie like that at that time. I mean, you know, but Tarantino remembered him from Blowout and he remembered Urban Cowboy. And, you know, remember the movies, they weren't that old. I mean, they were 10 or 12 years old at that point. But in Hollywood, that can be like an eternity. I mean, you know, you you know when you go see movies that you you see the same people pop up all the time. Like there will be a year where there will be some character actor that you'll see in four movies, and there are other people who you haven't seen for years. And it's like, well, why is that? And it's just because people are not. It's just because a lot of agents and casting directors and people aren't necessarily that imaginative. But Tarantino doesn't give a shit about those lists that like the agencies have that they send around about people who are available and stuff. He has like the, he has a list in his head, this database of people who he's loved over the years. And so Tarantino, Travolta and Blowout, that had always been one of his favorite performances and it just, he never forgot it. And so he, you know, pulls that from the back of his head and thinks of Travolta. He hadn't written Pulp Fiction for Travolta. I mean, he had had other people he thought about possibly, um, I think he had thought about Michael Madsen or somebody like that being in that part. And, uh, you know, but anyway, it was obviously brilliant casting. And I think Travolta probably was smart enough to know, you know, that this was something this, that this would do something for him. And it did. I mean, it put Travolta back on the A-list for another 10, 15 years. You ever seen that show, Cops? I was watching it one time, and there was this this cop on. He was talking about about this gunfight he had in the hallway with this this guy, right? And he just unloaded on this guy, and nothing happened. He didn't hit nothing. Okay, it was just him and this guy. I mean, you know, it's it's freaky, but it happens. Look, you want to play blind man? Go walk with the shepherd. But me, my eyes are wide fucking open. What the fuck does that mean? I mean, that's it for me. From here on in, you can consider my ass retired. Jesus Christ. Don't blaspheme. God damn it, I said don't do that. Hey, you know why you're fucking freaking out on us? Look, I'm telling Marcellus today. I'm through. Well, why don't you tell him at the same time why? Don't worry, I will. Yeah, and I'll bet you $10,000 he lasts his ass off. I don't give a damn if he does. Marvin, what do you make of all this? Man, I don't even have an opinion. Well, you gotta have an opinion. I mean, do you think that God came down from heaven and stopped... Oh! What the fuck's happening? Oh, oh man. shit! Man. 
Oh man, I shot Marvin in the face. Why the fuck you do that? Oh, I didn't mean to do it. It was an accident. Oh man, I seen some crazy ass shit in my time, but just chill out, man. I told you it was an accident. You probably he went over a bump or hey, something. Hey, the car ain't hit no motherfucking bump. Hey, look, man, I didn't, I didn't mean to shoot the son of a bitch. The gun went off. I don't know why. Well, look at this fucking mess, man. We're on a city street in broad daylight here. Believe it, man. Well, believe it now, motherfucker. We gotta get this car off the road. You know, cops tend to notice shit like you're driving just a car against this fucking a, blood. Just take it to a friendly place. That's all. This is the valley, Vincent. Marcellus ain't got no friendly but places in the valley. But you'll save my fucking town, man. Shit. What you doing? I'm calling my partner in Toluca Lake. Where's Toluca Lake? It's just over the hill here, over by Burbank Studios. If Jimmy's ass ain't home, I don't know what the fuck we gonna do, man, because I ain't got no other partners in 818. Jimmy, yo, how you doing, man? It's Jules. Just listen up, man. Me and my homeboy in some serious fucking shit, man. We're in a car. We got to get off the road pronto. I need to use your garage for a couple hours. I want to just go back to your experience with Pulp Fiction, first time seeing it. Having seen Reservoir Dogs, and I'm assuming multiple times leading up to seeing Pulp Fiction in the theater. Was there anything about the movie, knowing knowing the director's pedigree by this point, was there anything about the movie that just shocked you? And was there any of these oh-my-God moments when you were seeing it and the, some brilliant moments as well? I'm going to admit something shocking, which is that I was a little disappointed by Pulp Fiction the first time I saw it. Okay. And I think that's but only because... I had seen Reservoir Dogs so many times. I had seen True Romance so many times. I had seen Natural Born Killer so many times. I was, I was such an obsessive fan of his that I think there were, on the first viewing, the things in Pulp Fiction that felt repetitive to me from those other movies uh, sort of overshadowed the stuff in it that was new and great. I think I was expecting to have my mind blown the way it had been blown by those other movies. And it wasn't because, you know, he opens the movie again in a coffee shop. He has, he, you know, it's the same, you know, the, he's got the hitman dressed in the Ocean's Eleven suits. He's got the, or, or not Ocean, the Band of Outsiders suits, whichever movie you want to use. You know, there were certain, there were so many things that I felt like he was sort of repeating himself. And so on first viewing, like, I liked it, but I was a little disappointed. And it wasn't until the second viewing that I really appreciated what a great movie it was. I will say on the first viewing, the thing I loved was I did love the structural conceit of killing off one of the main characters in the second story and then bringing him back in the third. And you realize that you've been watching this whole movie out of order, which, I mean, again, is a Reservoir Dogs thing. And even had been in the script for True Romance. You know, if you read the script for True Romance, it's all out of chronological order. And basically, Tony Scott, I don't know if he did it in the editing room or if they did it at the script level, if he cut and pasted or whatever. But True Romance, they put it in chronological order, but chronological order, but Tarantino's script had not been like that. But anyway, that I loved on first viewing in Pulp Fiction. And there were certainly, you know, the, there were certainly those things I, when I talk about the tonal shifts, uh, you know, the, the, the famous, the adrenaline shot scene and, and the scene with Ving Rames and Bruce Willis, uh, you know, being kidnapped. You know, there were definitely some great shocking moments of violence and comedy coming together and all that. But on first viewing of it, I was a little bit disappointed. And, and really, I, I don't, I actually don't think I fully appreciated how great Pulp Fiction was until pretty recently. I, a year or two ago, Tarantino at his uh, theater here in LA, the New Beverly, they did a thing where he showed, they did every Friday night at midnight, um, 
they showed his movies in order and I went to all of them and seeing Pulp Fiction on the big screen again for the first time since it had come out, I really appreciated what a great movie it was and that it's, and, and, but, but on first viewing, I think I, I was, uh, my expectations were just too stratospheric and maybe there was some part of me, I mean, this is sort of childish, but maybe there was some part of me that like didn't was, I don't know, jealous or something of the fact that now everyone else had discovered Tarantino. Like there was some part of it that was like, Oh, like, he was mine, you know, he was my special thing. And now the world has him. And maybe, maybe there was some kind of childish juvenile response to it becoming uh, a big blockbuster that like, I felt like other people didn't deserve Tarantino if they hadn't been with him from the beginning, like I was or something like that. So I, so that was kind of a goofy reaction I had to it, but I now consider it, you know, one of the all time great movies for sure. What was your reaction come award season when it became again, sort of a, at least from a nomination standpoint, an awards darling. I mean, I was certainly, I think by that point, I think I was happy. Look, I, I was thrilled that the, uh, that somehow the, you know, because the Academy for is such a, you know, uh, stodgy. I mean, maybe it's different now, but certainly at that point, it was such a stodgy group of, you know, old ladies voting on these things. And I love the fact that, you know, even Marie Saint and Jack Lemon and people like that had to be going to like screenings of Pulp Fiction to vote, to vote on it. You know, they're like, even Marie Saint is watching Ving Rhames get, uh, anally raped on screen and then Bruce Willis saving him with a samurai sword or whatever it was. So, you know, even though it wasn't necessarily my favorite Tarantino movie, I think I was glad to see it getting the accolades that it was getting. I don't remember, I don't even remember what, 94. I'm trying to remember what my favorite movie would have been in 94 and I can't remember it cause I, it certainly wouldn't have been Forrest Gump, which was the other big awards, uh, movie at that time. But, um, you know, I was, I was certainly, I would never have thought that Tarantino would become as embraced by the establishment as he became. I mean, and I think it's kind of cool in a way, you know, it's cool to me that he gets Oscars. It's cool to me that, and again, it's, it's, it's fascinating to me, those three guys, PT, Christopher Nolan and, and Tarantino, how they just kind of, uh, are like the the three guys who managed to do their own very idiosyncratic thing and be very respected in the industry without having compromised themselves at all. And in Tarantino's case, it's the most shocking because his movies are so confrontational. I mean, the fact that he won an Oscar for the screenplay for Django Unchained is like just totally bizarre to me, but but also totally wonderful and totally deserved. And and I kind of you know I kind of think think it's cool that he's this mix of being this maverick, but you know also like a real establishment guy. I mean, he is about as establishment as they come. He makes movies with Brad Pitt and Leonardo DiCaprio and he gets Oscars and his movies are distributed by major studios. And it's, um, you know, it's kind, it kind of gives me a little bit of hope for the industry at a time when, you know, it often seems as though all they're interested in is, you know, sequels and franchises and all that kind of stuff. Given what we know about the Academy now, even back then, it's one thing to be nominated for best picture, but are we being honest when we say that that movie didn't stand a chance for winning the Oscar for best picture back in 94? Oh, uh, I don't know. You know, I mean, I felt like it was a pretty close. I felt like leading up to it, it was, uh, I felt like there was a possibility. I mean, I think Gump was always the front runner, but I, I feel like there, it, it did feel at the time, like he had a shot at it. Um, it didn't feel totally insane, but you know, in general, 
you know, it's like the year Dances with Wolves and Goodfellas were up against each other. In general, the Dances with Wolves or the Forrest Gump, you know, the movie that's got a sort of heartwarming element to it is always going to win out over the sort of more confrontational films, I think. It's very rare that that's not the case. In 1995, he directed an episode of ER, which I actually remember seeing on television. Unfortunately, I only saw it that one time, so that was 23 years ago, so my memory is incredibly fuzzy about it. But uh, do you have any any memories about that particular episode of ER? You know, I've never seen either of the TV episodes you directed. I never saw ER and I never saw the CSI, so I can't uh, comment on either of those. Fair enough, fair enough. So also in 95, we get Four Rooms, an anthology-style film with Tim Roth sort of being the, the main through line or main thread throughout this uh, series of anthology stories. What are your thoughts on Four Rooms? You know, it's the one movie that sort of, I guess, proves Tarantino fallible because I yes. think pretty much everything else he directed is great. And that one is really kind of a misfire all the way around. I mean, I think the only story in Four Rooms that really works uh, is the Rodriguez, the Robert Rodriguez one, which is ironic because I'm not generally a big Robert Rodriguez fan. But I think that movie is uh, his strengths are really well suited in a way to that short form because I, I, I Rodriguez is kind of a, I think of him as like somebody's got a great you know he's funny and he's a great stylist but I don't often I don't feel like his movies have a ton of depth to them and so in a way like having a 20 or 30 minute segment is perfect for him because he can kind of you know do all of his stylistic things and it was really fun his was really fun I thought the other three were pretty much uniformly god-awful and I, and I like all of those directors a lot I like Alexander Rockwell a lot I like Alison Anders a lot and obviously I like Tarantino a lot you know, Tarantino's, I think that was just maybe the one case in his career where I don't know if he, you know, I, I don't want to psychoanalyze him. I don't know the man. I've, you know, I've, I've barely ever, I've, I've met him very briefly, but, but it, it seems sort of like, um, you know, it was his, it was like a one time when his, his very big ego kind of overwhelmed the movie itself like you know tarantino look he, he's he's a guy with a huge ego uh and but generally it's pretty much justified i mean he backs it up with his movies you know he he, he delivers that one i just it just felt like i just don't know what he was really getting at it didn't it wasn't entertaining it wasn't funny i felt like it was everything his the people who don't like him i feel like get a lot of am would get a lot of ammunition from his four room segment because it was just kind of a it felt very like self-absorbed and indulgent and uninteresting and unfunny. So yeah, that was the one, the only time I've ever truly not enjoyed myself watching a Tarantino movie. And I've, I think I've only twice I watched on the theater. I maybe revisited it once on video to see if it was as bad as I remembered. And in fact, it was. Now, before we get onto the next film, I, I want to let the listeners know that if it seems like we glossed over natural born killers, I invite you to check out our retrospective on Oliver Stone where, where Jim, and I discuss natural born killers at uh, at a far greater length than than we did in this episode. And and if it seems like we kind of glossed over true romance, I invite listeners to check out the episode I did on sort of the history of true romance. And that one focuses a little bit more on Tony Scott's career, and it does talk about what Jim mentioned about the the different screenplays that he had wrote. Uh, back then while he was trying to get Reservoir Dogs produced. So I don't want the listeners out there going, we're not even talking about these other films. So there's certainly episodes that have already covered those. Jim, in 1997, we get Jackie Brown. Now, I will say that based on 
discussions I've had throughout the years with multiple fans of Tarantino's work that it's agreed upon that this is a very good film, but it's one that seems to get overshadowed by some of his other movies. I think at lately it's sort of had a bit of a resurgency, but I, I want if you could take me through the reception that this film received in 97 when it was released. And of course, your thoughts on the movie as well. You ain't say nothing about me. Mm-mm. Oh, that's mighty noble of you. They tell you what happened to this Beaumont fellow? Yeah, they told me. Yeah. Somebody must have been real mad at old Beaumont. Else they pretty scared about what he might say to keep from doing some time. Yeah, I bet they asked you a whole shitload of questions. And you ain't giving no kind of answer. Mm. You scared of me? You got any reason to be nervous around me? Is that what I think it is? What do you think it is? I think it's a gun pressed up against my dick. (laughs) Well, you thought right. Now take your hands from around my throat, nigga. What the hell's wrong with you, Jackie? Shut the fuck up and don't you move. Oh, what is this? What the fuck is this, Hey, 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 now that ain't got nothing to do with you. I carry that all the time. You been talking to them police too much. Oh, the police didn't try and strangle my ass. Oh, come on, girl. You know I was just playing with you. Oh, I ain't playing with you. I'm going to unload both of these motherfuckers if you don't do what I tell you to do. You understand what I'm saying? Jackie, stop acting crazy. Do you understand what the fuck I'm yeah, saying? Yeah, woman, damn. Now sit your ass down on that sofa. See? The police start fucking with your mind. Start pitting black against black. That's how they do. You know, been doing it since the beginning. Shut your raggedy ass up and sit the fuck down. <sighs> and put your hands behind your head. Come on, this gets silly now. Oh, silly? You want to see some motherfucking silly? If I have to tell you to shut up one more time, I'm going to shut you up. You know, I think, look, after you make a movie like Pulp Fiction, anything that comes afterwards to a certain, in the public's eye, is going to be considered somewhat of a letdown. Like, there's no way he could have met. That movie was such a phenomenon. I mean, to do a movie that is as, you know, as, as, much, as much of a cultural phenomenon as that one was, something that's as popular as acclaimed, you know, it's rare that you get a movie... You know, Pulp Fiction was a movie like The Godfather. I mean, it was a movie where he just hit every, you know, artistic, commercial, you know, every, it just, it just was a success on every level. And that is rare. It's rare. And so you're always going to have a little bit of a thing with some people being disappointed by the follow up. I actually had the opposite reaction. I remember seeing Jackie Brown when it came out and being blown away by it because I felt like it had this newfound kind of, emotional complexity to it. I mean, there was, there were hints of that in the other movies, but I thought it was just, um, a really beautiful movie about, you know, aging and regret and roads not taken. And, and when is, when is it? I mean, it was, it was actually a big influence on the movie, on the movie I directed, The Trouble with the Truth thematically, just in terms of being a movie about like this question of how late is too late to sort of change your life and, and, live the life you want, you want to live. And, and I feel like that movie asked those questions in very profound ways. And I also think it's the first sign of what would later become Tarantino's kind of one of his great strengths, which was as a sort of 
sociological commentator on race in America. I mean, Reservoir Dogs and Pulp Fiction have elements of, you know, stuff about race in them, but they're kind of more smart alecky about it. And I feel like Jackie Brown, there's this really interesting subtext where the, the Robert Forster character, in a way, there's this sort of subtext that the reason he can't go away with Jackie at the end of the movie is because being a white man from his generation, there's still something that that's not a realistic option for him. And it's very, and it's very poignant and, and sad and beautiful. And so I thought it was just an incredible movie. I do think people now, I talk to a lot of people now who that's their favorite Tarantino movie. I think just at the time it had a slight, it was a quieter movie than what he had done before. And it was a sort of, you know, it wasn't, I actually think it's a more confident movie. Like it's not a movie by a guy who feels the need to show off and he doesn't, he doesn't feel the need to impress you. You know, he's already impressed you. It's like he, he, he got, he impressed everybody as much as he possibly could with Pulp Fiction. So Jackie Brown is a more restrained movie. And I think at the time that made some people kind of disappointed. And look, let's face it. There are a lot of people who like Tarantino, just like there are a lot of people who like Scorsese only because they like hearing the swear words and watching heads get blown off. You know, there's a whole lot of people who are not, you know, those filmmakers, both Tarantino and Marty are very, they're very nuanced, complex filmmakers, but there's a lot of people who don't, that's not why they watch them. They do watch them for the more kind of, for more kind of superficial juvenile reasons. And, you know, I always say with, with Scorsese, I, if I meet somebody who says they like his movies and they don't love Age of Innocence, I, I know that person doesn't really understand Martin Scorsese movies. Uh-huh. Um, and I think with Tarantino, I kind of feel that way a little bit about Jackie Brown. I feel like there's just, uh, I, but I, but I think there's a lot of people, a lot of people, the people who like get off on the violence and stuff like that, even though that movie has violence in it, I think they, they were left wanting by it, uh, in a way that they were not <laughs> by his next movie by Kill Bill. Like Kill Bill kind of came back with that stuff with a vengeance. But, but yes, I mean, I think Jackie Brown was just destined to be kind of considered a little bit of a disappointment. But, you know, there were certainly, even at the time, plenty of champions of it. It did fine. It did well. It just didn't make full fiction money. But, but you know, how often is that going to happen? It's not my intention to do a out-of-chronological-order episode, but there's a couple things that I want to touch on with the first three films, Reservoir Dogs, Pulp Fiction, and Jackie Brown. The first one is the, the use of music in these movies. And, you know, i just just curious your thoughts, you know, the decisions – that he made to include certain songs. I wonder if, and I think all the songs work amazing in the film, but I'm oft, I'm often wondering with, with such limited budgets, was he constrained by licensing rights? And I know that's just pure speculation, but. Well, he sure doesn't seem like it. I mean, I, cause I feel like those, I don't know. And I don't know if, you know, things, I mean, by the time he did Jackie Brown, he certainly, you know, he probably could get whatever music he wanted and, and did. And then I think in the case of, you know, in the case of Reservoir Dogs, I, my suspicion with him is not that he was made. I don't think he was probably making any of his choices based on the budget. I think luckily for him, his taste in pop music is much like his taste in movies, is very encyclopedic. And so, you know, a song like stuck in the middle with you, which was used so memorably in reservoir dogs, you know, now that song is, it's like kind of a big pop classic again, but at the time it was in the movie, nobody was thinking about Steeler's Wheel. It's not sure. like they were a band that was, so it probably wasn't as expensive to get. Like now it would be expensive to get because he brought it back and made it so huge. But like, you know, some of those bands like Steeler's Wheel and Blue Suede and, uh, you know, that he was using Reservoir Dogs, he probably got a pretty good deal on them. Um, you know, and Pulp Fiction, uh, you know, who knows? I don't know. 
how, you know, I mean, cause you can, it, depending on your music super, if you have a music supervisor who's skilled at negotiating and back in those days, they could kind of negotiate things based on the soundtrack album. I mean, nowadays soundtrack albums aren't like a big business anymore, but at the time, you know, they could sort of package these things in soundtrack albums where the artists knew they were going to get more money for that. And they could, they could kind of figure out ways around having to pay a ton of money for the, the music rights. But, um, but yeah, I mean, his use of music obviously is always, you know, fantastic. And, uh, there's no, I don't know what I, there's, you know, that, that's again, that whole thing about him mixing the varying tones, that's a whole other level to it is in Reservoir Dogs having sort of bubblegum pop music with these extremely serious, disturbing, violent, situations you know we're going to be talking about all the films here so i'd be remiss if we didn't start a discussion now about samuel L. jackson starting with of course pulp fiction and then his character in jackie brown and then his career at the time and what this did for his career yeah well pulp fiction obviously launched him into the stratosphere i mean he had been he had certainly you know i think the first movie people most people really took notice of him in was Jungle Fever, which would have been a year, a few years earlier than Pulp Fiction. I guess that was Jungle Fever, I think was maybe 91 ish. And, you know, and, and I mean, obviously he'd been to do the right thing. He had been the, the DJ and do the right thing. And so, you know, so he had been, he had been getting attention in some things, but Pulp Fiction really launched him into the stratosphere. And I think, you know, and, and he's, has he been in, uh, has he been in, in some form or another, has he been in every Tarantino movie since? I think he has, because he's the piano player in Kill Bill. And then, um, is he, uh, maybe not death proof. I don't know if he's anywhere in death proof, but, uh, I'll tell you one second. I'm just, I'm just going through the filmography on IMDb. Death proof was 2007 and he is not listed on the credits for death proof. Okay. So that's maybe the exception, but okay. he's, but he pops up in one way or another, even if it's just as like a voice, he pops up in all the other ones. But yeah, I mean, I feel like, you know, it's full fiction, like it made him, explode and become a star and uh you know now he's what he's probably given like the star wars movies and some of the other things he's been in my i don't know this for a fact but my guess is that probably sam jackson if you tallied up the box offices of all his movies he's probably got the highest box office number of any star in the history of movies yeah no yeah <laughs> he has 182 acting credits listed on imdb and i I'm, i dare say that a good majority of them were were post pulp fiction because he seemed yeah. to just be in everything after yeah. that 97, Jackie Brown, not as well received, and you made a great case as, you know, as to why it wasn't, as far as, you know, you, know, you, you, you come up with Pulp Fiction and then uh, expectations are gonna, always going to be too high for whatever he does mm-hmm. next. Is the, is the, I don't want to say the negative reception, is the, the lack of success of Jackie Brown, does that play a role in the six-year absence we have between Jackie Brown and Kill Bill Volume 1? I'm guessing it must have. I mean, again, I don't know, you know, I don't know the man personally, but I'm I'm guessing that it probably sent him into a bit of a, you know, uh, crisis a little bit, you know, because he had been so, you know, Reservoir Dogs, you know, Reservoir Dogs wasn't like a huge hit, but he was certainly getting, you know, praised everywhere he went at the festival circuit and all that kind of stuff. And then Pulp Fiction couldn't have been a bigger phenomenon. And so there's probably some part of him that was, I don't know if it was self second guessing or self doubting, but he probably wanted to come back really hard after Jackie Brown and, you know, prove that he could sort of blow people away again. Um, and to a certain extent, I think he did with, uh, the Kill Bill movies. I mean, they weren't as big as, they weren't as universally popular as, uh, as Pulp Fiction, but he certainly got his big 
he certainly got most of his fan base back with it. And they were, they were, you know, bold and popular uh, movies in a way that maybe Jackie Brown wasn't at the time it came out. And Kill Bill is such a radical departure from the first three films in the sense Mm -hmm. that, I mean, we're, we're, we're introducing a completely different level of storytelling with the Kill Bill films, you know, in, in the Reservoir Dogs, Pulp Fiction, Jackie Brown, there are characters that, you know, the audience can relate to. And, and, but there, there are some really off the wall characters. And, and, and I'm mm-hmm. wondering, you know, is this, this was all part of the plan? Like this is him doing what he wants to do on a, on a much bigger scale. I mean, is, yeah. that, is that how we're looking at this? Because I, I just watched Kill Bill. Uh, it was two days ago. Just I hadn't seen it in, in ten years, and and I love it. Mm-hmm. I, I I love the yeah. movie. I think it's anta- fantastic. But I just kept saying to myself, this. I don't know if you could have gone from Jackie Brown in '97 and then released Kill Bill in '98. You know, I think you right. need, you need that six year absence because the the world changed in that six year period. Yeah. So mm-hmm. your thoughts on Kill Bill? Yeah, I mean, I think, and and it's that movie is you know in terms of his level of ambition. It's another giant leap forward. Like I feel like Kill Bill is sort of where he becomes uh, a major action director, which is what he, um, uh, which is what he, you know, now I think with Django and Glorious Bastards and all that kind of stuff, that that became another aspect of his persona as a director. But yeah, I mean, Kill Bill, you know, I feel like uh, it's just sort of this movie mad orgy of like everything he ever loved and you know thrown together in one movie but again still making it his own and making it new and i mean i i think you know it's an interesting movie because it's his most referential movie it's the one that is the most made up of things from other movies and in jokes about other movies and all that uh and yet i still think it's selling him short to say that it's just a movie about other movies because i think the whole I, I, I think the whole thing, you know, if you're taking the two movies together, I think if you're taking the two movies together, it's still that um, relationship between Uma Thurman and David Carradine's characters is just like one of the great portraits of a dysfunctional relationship in the history of movies. I mean, it's almost like something out of a Ingmar Bergman or Cassavetes movie or something. Um, and that was kind of, you know. I think it, they're an interesting pair, and it's and it's interesting too if you ever get a chance to see. I don't know if they're ever going to release it on video, but you know, there's this cut of the two movies together that Tarantino did called Kill Bill: The Whole Bloody Affair, and he shows it in, in, out here in LA at the New Beverly. He shows it a few times a year, and that cut is really interesting because the two movies sort of jammed up against each other, but with a couple minor differences and um one of the minor differences being that you don't have the scene from the end of kill bill volume one where david carradine says does she know that her daughter is still alive Hmm. um and so what that does when you watch the whole thing is this one four-hour movie is you have the same moment of realization that uh the uma thurman has uh when she sees her daughter and it's a very, it's a really powerful, powerful moment. It's really, it's really interesting. And it's an interesting experiment the whole way around. It's the way the movie works as the two things combined, the way they work separately. And, you know, I mean, look, I, I love it completely. I love all, I love any iteration of that movie. Um, and it was, you know, again, certainly one that at the time when I saw it blew me away and I've never, I've never not loved it. This is the movie that 
I think, takes the violence to a different level and one that he never steps back from as far as mm-hmm. as far as the, the use of squibs well that's more that's more yeah. inglorious bastards let me say that again but just this movie really his level of violence becomes almost satirical well it's it it is satirical by the time you get to kill bill but i think it's something that he never takes his foot off the gas with any subsequent films what are your thoughts on yeah. that yeah no that is uh that's absolutely true. <laughs> um, yeah, the, uh, I don't. I don't know if I have anything more to say about it than than you just did, but uh, it certainly it certainly did ramp that up to a whole new level. So I remember seeing the trailer for the Grindhouse project, as I'm going to call it, the the double uh-huh. feature. I I wonder if you could just for a moment explain to again. I hate I hate to keep using the term the younger listeners, but for 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 those that aren't aware. What what was a grindhouse? What was the grindhouse in the 1970s? And then what was I mean, the, yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. And, I'm sorry. And then what was what was so what did you find so interesting about this particular project? Yeah, I mean, the grindhouses in the 70s, you know, they mostly existed in like urban areas like New York, you know, the the sort of area of New York that you see in Taxi Driver that now is just completely uh, you know, family friendly and everything. But back then in the 70s, you know, it was just like all these theaters that would play these double features and it would become Fu movies or slasher movies or, um, you know, black exploitation movies, you know, porno movies sometimes, whatever. Um, and so, you know, the conceit, obviously, of Grindhouse, of Rodriguez and Tarantino's Grindhouse, is that it would be like if you went, what you would see if you went to one of those theaters. So you would see a double feature of a couple of sleazy movies and you would see trailers for other sleazy movies. And I think, you know, that was for me as a movie fan, it was a great concept and I loved Grindhouse. Um, but, you know, I, I think it, it was Tarantino's one, aside from Four Rooms, uh, it was, you know, his one of his rare sort of commercial missteps, like a movie that just did not connect with the public. And I think that maybe that concept, uh, you know, I think maybe those of us who are into movies overestimated how much people understood that concept. I think people just didn't get it somehow. And, uh, and certainly they didn't get the fact that like the scratches on the film and the skips and things like that were intentional because that's sort of, you know, when you went to a grindhouse, you sometimes were seeing a print that had been shuffled around from one theater to another or all over the country. So the time you saw it, it might be missing scenes and frames or, you know, whatever. And, you know, them approximating that was kind of a fun thing for movie nerds, but it, it, it really didn't translate. I don't think to, uh, to the general public, unfortunately, for uh, and unfortunately, and it's unfortunate because I think it would have been cool, you know, if they could have done a whole series of movies like that. Like I, I, I saw Grindhouse at a screening before it came out, so I didn't know that it was going to not do well financially. And I thought it was really exciting the idea that you could do a whole series of these grind. You could just get different directors and kind of keep doing it, and I, and it would have been a really fun thing. But that was sadly not to be. I saw Grindhouse in the theater. I was, and, and it's interesting you say that because I think I saw it. It came out on a Friday. I think I saw it that that following Tuesday, and I was the only one in the theater. And and it was you know and it, I found that a little bit like just I thought Tarantino's a name alone was just would be enough just to bring people to see this film, just based on on everything that he had done up until that point. Now that being said. I was not a fan of the Planet Terror portion of the Grindhouse double feature. I 
thoroughly enjoyed Death Proof. And I that part of that could be because Kurt Russell is just one of my all-time favorite actors. Yeah. And to see him in this type of role where he's normally, you know, he's normally quite a quite a charismatic character in most of the films he plays, you know, all of right. Big, Big Trouble in Little China, things like that. Give me your thoughts on Death Proof. I mean, I, I know the film didn't do well financially, but I mean, what do you think about the movie? Hey, Warren, is there anybody in this place you could vouch for to give me a ride home? Fair lady, your chariot awaits. You've been eavesdropping? <laughs> eavesdropping and can't help but here. I think I belong in the latter category. So, uh, icy hot. You offering me a ride home? I'm offering you a lift. If when I'm ready to leave, you are too. And when are you thinking about leaving? Truthfully, I'm not thinking about it. When I do, you will be the first to know. Will you be able to uh, drive later? I know looks can be deceiving. But I'm a teetotaler. I've been drinking club soda and lime all night, and now I'm building up to my big drink. Which is what? Virgin Pina Colada. Okay. Why would someone who doesn't drink spend hours at a bar drinking water? You know, a bar offers all kind of things other than alcohol. Really? Like what? Women. Nacho Grande platters. The fellowship of some fascinating individuals like Warren here. Uh, alcohol is just a lubricant for all the individual encounters that a barroom offers. Ooh, is that cowboy wisdom? I'm not a cowboy, Pam. I'm a stuntman. But that's a very easy mistake to make. How do you know my name? When you were talking with Warren, couldn't help but overhear. Fair enough. So what's your name, Icy? Stuntman Mike. Stuntman Mike's your name. You ask anybody. Hey, Warren. Who is this guy? Stuntman Mike. And who the hell is Stuntman Mike? Yeah, I mean, I love Death Proof. I actually have to say i probably slightly prefer the cut of death proof that's in grindhouse to his extended uh the cut of death proof by itself okay um because i think i actually think the one the full-length version i actually feel like has a little bit of the some of the things that people don't like the people who don't, again the people who don't like tarantino what they criticize him for i feel like the full-length death proof is a little bit overlong and indulgent and kind of like characters talking about nothing for too long and, and things like that. But I, I absolutely love the one that's in, um, this in Grindhouse. I and mean, I love the idea of doing something that's essentially a slasher movie where the killer uses a car instead of a knife or, you know, whatever. And I, and I agree with you that Kurt Russell's performance as the bad guy is just incredible in that movie. It's great to see him as a, you know, as a psycho as opposed to his usual affable, you know, charming self. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I thought it was, I thought it was great. It's a, you make a great point, and I didn't really even think about it when you talk about how how great it would have been if Grindhouse had been successful and we would have continued to carry these series on. Two thousand and nine, and this is, I mean, we spent some time talking about Inglorious Bastards because this was the, and I've said this before on the podcast, this is the first and only time that I've ever seen a movie that. When I exited the theater, I immediately turned around to the box office and bought a ticket for the next showing. Mm -hmm. uh, there was so much to process in this film. The performances were on. A, 
through the stratosphere, Christoph Waltz had probably been very well known to a lot of people around the world. To me, he wasn't, and I'll admit that. The introduction to to arguably one of the bad one of the best bad guys in cinema history. I mean, there's a yeah. lot to unpack here, but just take me through your initial viewings of Inglorious Bastards. Yeah, well, again, I think you know, in terms of this whole thing, where I think he makes these quantum leaps every time he makes a movie. You know, Inglorious Bastards, it, it sort of uh, was the beginning of you know that initiated this last phase of his career that he's been in for a few movies where, and this is, I think, you know, a big argument against this whole idea that he's just a guy who makes movies about other movies because he, his last few movies and glorious bastards, Django and hateful eight, he suddenly become this kind of, you know, pop historian who's sort of simultaneously rewriting history and commenting on history at the same time. And so you've got that aspect to glorious bastards. You think, I think in terms of the filmmaking, it's maybe the best, just purely directed movie he's ever made. I mean, that whole se- opening sequence with Christoph Waltz and the, the people being the, you know, the Jews hidden under the floorboards and all that. I mean, just incredibly, uh, well, you know, impeccably paced and directed. And yeah, it's, it's, uh, there's so, it's, it's one of those movies that's just great on every level that a movie can be great on. Um, and that, that delivers the sex sort of conventional satisfactions of a war movie and a Western, but does it all in such, you know, such different ways. And, and, and it's interesting because, I mean, his movies, you know, talking about structure, like Inglorious Bastards is essentially a more straightforward structure in some ways than some of his other movies. But the fact that his movies are so long, I, I think, is, you know, like, I mean, there's some, like, in some director's hands, that would be a mistake. But I think the fact that his movies are so long is interesting because it, as an audience member, you're not able to predict where they're going the way you are. Like, most theatrical movies, they follow the exact same rhythms. Most two-hour studio movies or whatever, you you kind of, you can always kind of sense where you are in the movie. And in Glorious Bastards, you're never completely sure where you are. And And again, I just think that whole, it's, it's it's both uh it's just so many different kinds of movies in one and i do love that that it is such a like sort of love letter to cinema that the that you know one of the heroes of the movie is a film projectionist um it's it's yeah it's it's uh incredible just talk a little bit about christoph waltz as colonel hans lander in this film and and were you familiar with him prior to to the release of this film no i don't think i had seen him in anything i mean i think he was known you know he was might have been known in Europe or whatever, but I, I don't, I had never come across him. And yeah, it was certainly one of those, you know, one of those part parts where you see the, the opening scene and you know, kind of know you're seeing a movie star. And, uh, you know, the fact that he's equally great in a totally different kind of role in Django, uh, you know, is sort of a testament to what a fantastic actor that he is. Now, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention one of the more interesting scenes that's only four minutes long in the movie, and that is the scene between Michael Fassbender and Michael Myers, uh, with Mike Myers, excuse me, with Mike Myers and Churchill sitting in the background. And it just speaks to the the cameos that, that Tarantino's often able to pull, uh, just, mm-hmm. just seemingly out of nowhere. So just a couple questions, your thoughts on, on the scene between Myers and Fassbender and uh, Fassbender, again, this is a film that I was just, this was my real first introduction to him. So your thoughts on those guys? I'm not sure if Fassbender, I'm trying to remember if, I, if I'd seen, if Hunger had been out before 
Inglorious Bastards or not. I know, I know, I know Fassbender kind of, I got into him very, like, there were a few movies that I saw all at around the same time and, like, just instantly was, uh, in, you know, amazed by him. I mean, Hunger was one, Inglorious Bastards was one. Uh, he did a movie that Joel Schumacher directed called Blood Creek that was, they all kind of came out around the same time, or at least I saw them around the same time, I should say. I don't know if they came out at the same time. And so Fassbender, like, right around that moment, I was really just taken with him. Um, you know, and the, honestly, the Mike Myers scene, um, I'm not really the world's biggest Mike Myers fan. Right. So, uh, <laughs> I, uh, I was more, I was more taken in that scene with the fact that he had Rod Taylor playing, uh, Winston Churchill. So, um, you know, there's like Rod Taylor from the birds and dark of the sun and, and things like that, who I didn't even know was necessarily still alive. Lieutenant Archie Hickox, reporting south. General Ed Fennick, at ease, Hickox. Drink. If you offered me a scotch and plain water, I could drink a scotch and plain water. That a boy, Lieutenant. Make it yourself like a good chap, will you? The bars and the glow. Something for yourself, sir? Whiskey, straight. No junk in it. It says here that you speak German fluently. Like a cat and jammer kid. And your occupation before the war? I'm a film critic. List your accomplishments. Well, sir, such as they are, I write reviews and articles for a publication called Films and Filmmakers. And I've had two books published. Impressive. Well, don't be modest, Lieutenant. What are their titles? The first book was called Art of the Eyes, the Heart and the Mind. Study of German cinema in the 20s. And the second one was called 24 Frame Da Vinci. It's a subtextual film criticism study of the work of German director G.W. Pabst. What should we drink to, sir? Well, um, down with Hitler. All the way down, sir. Are you familiar with German cinema under the Third Reich? Yes, obviously I haven't seen any of the films made in the last three years, but I'm familiar with it. Explain it to me. Pardon, sir? Well, this little escapade of ours requires a knowledge of the German film industry under the Third Reich. Explain to me Ufa under Goebbels. Goebbels considers the films he's making to be the beginning of a new era in German cinema an alternative to what he considers the Jewish-German intellectual cinema of the 20s and the Jewish-controlled dogma of Hollywood. How's he doing? Frightfully sorry, sir. Once again? You say he wants to take on the Jews at their own game, or compared to, say, Louis B. Mayer. How's he doing? Quite well, actually. Since Goebbels has taken over, film attendance has steadily risen in Germany over the last eight years. But Louis B. Mayer wouldn't be Goebbels' proper opposite number. I believe Goebbels sees himself closer to David O. Selznick. Brief him. You know, you know, again, his sort of file cabinet he has in his head of actors, like no one else would think of Rod Taylor for, you know, being in that movie. And, uh... 
it was but it was a great yeah it was it was a brilliant stroke of casting yeah and it's interesting because who would you say the star of that movie is because there are the the characters are just so interwoven throughout the story that they'll disappear for literally an hour at a time. So if you were if you were to peg top billing for that film, who would you give it to? I mean, it's certainly short pie. I would say it's sort of evenly split between the Aldo Rain character and the uh, what the heck is her name, the female whose name I'm Shoshana. Uh, I think that Shoshana. Shoshana yeah. yeah, I think it, I would say it's probably evenly split between Shoshana and. And Aldo Rain. Um, I mean, you know, so Brad Pitt gets top billing because he's the biggest star. But uh, I would say, you know, it's sort of evenly split between those two, and and even to a certain extent, the Christoph Waltz character. I mean, it's definitely, um, you know, it's definitely an ensemble film where there's pretty pretty equal weight spread among those three. What a, talk to me about the talk to me a little bit about the decision for Tarantino to to sort of rewrite history, and it's it's. It was pretty bold, even though it's a it's a complete work of fiction. But uh, I know he caught a little bit of flack for that. Well, this speaks to a whole other thing about Tarantino, which is that he does things. He's kind of a novelist working in film, and he does a lot of things in film that no one would ever consider a big deal if a novelist did them. You know, the structural stuff in Pulp Fiction. You know, he's he's commented on this many times. Like basically, he's just doing what. Elmore Leonard or people like that would do. They'll jump back and forth. They'll take a chapter where suddenly you go back and are introduced to a character when they're younger or things like that. And, um, you know, and same thing with the violence in his movies is nothing compared to like what's in a James Elroy book or, or something like that. And that whole thing, the whole rewriting history is, you know, a very common thing and, and very acclaimed thing in literary novels. I mean, Don DeLillo does it all the time and stuff like Underworld and Libra. And again, James Elroy does it all the time and things like American tabloid, you know, he rewrites the Kennedy assassination. And so, um, you know, to me, it's a total non-issue and I don't really, I don't really understand the criticism. It seems to me like, you know, criticizing that movie for not staying faithful to history is like, uh, you know, it's like criticizing Psycho for the lack of musical numbers. It's it's just not you're you're not you're not looking at the movie on the terms the movie is setting out for itself. Absolutely, good point, good point. All right, so we're we're going to be rolling into 2012's Django Unchained, and this is a film that we're speaking about, sort of the how he ratchets up the violence in Kill Bill to sort of a satirical level, and that's very present in Inglorious Bastards. Some of the scenes in Django Unchained were, I think, the first that really got under my skin and really made uh-huh. me uncomfortable in the theater. Uh, you know, uh, the, the Inglorious Bastards violence, you kind of, you kind of laugh like, oh, like that's, the, you know, like it's just kind of like so off the wall. But with Django Unchained, I, I have a difficult time sometimes with this film, even though I think it's brilliant and I've seen it numerous times, but there are admittedly scenes in this film that I will skip ahead after I've already mm-hmm. seen him in the theater. Well, I think, I think what you're responding to in Django Unchained is it's the, the violence in that movie. There's a couple of elements to it. I mean, they're different from the violence in the movies he, he did before. And one is just, I think his own personal sense of moral outrage. You know, I think the Christoph Waltz character is sort of a, I think where he gets to by the end of that movie is sort of where Tarantino is at, at the beginning. And I think, yeah, I think that I think Django Unchained and Hateful Eight are both movies made by a guy who is very uh, 
very both saddened and angered by the way race is handled in this country and 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 I think and and is enraged by its history and I think in Django there's a moral force to the violence that you know he really you know in order he, he really wants to kind of rub everyone's faces in the ugliness of our past in a way that, you know, he doesn't in the other movies. And, and even though Inglorious Bastards is about like Nazis and all that kind of stuff, it's a little different because most of Inglorious Bastards is this wish fulfillment thing where you're getting to watch the, you know, Brad Pitt and his, uh, you know, hunters, Nazi, you know, you're getting to watch them just obliterate these Nazis. And that's like a feel good kind of violence. And, um, you know, Django, it's, it, you know, I mean, both like both Django and Hateful Eight are kind of these movies about just the torment and mutilation of the human body and that being a kind of legacy of, of slavery and racism and all that kind of stuff. So I think it just has a it's it's not fun the way that I mean, it's fun once Django kind of turns the tables and yeah. just blowing away everybody at the end. But up until that point, it's not fun the way that it, it is in his other movies. And it's purposefully elongated. You know, there are scenes that go on longer than they need to structurally uh, because he wants you to be uncomfortable. So I think, you know, I think he I think he's eliciting from you and from me and from everybody who saw that movie exactly the effect that that he wanted. And again, I thought. You know, it's hard to pick a favorite Tarantino movie because they're all different. They're all great in different ways. But probably if I was pressed, I would say that Django Unchained, I think, is his best movie because I think it's the one that synthesizes everything that makes him great in one movie. And it does have the sort of most genuine moral force behind it. I mean, I really uh, and the most ambition. I mean, I think, again, like the way the way he's playing with history in that movie and just the way, you know, the way Tarantino, he really kind of had with those last two movies, the Django and Hateful Eight, I feel like he really had his finger on the pulse of something going on in America now, because obviously we're seeing that there's still this idea that we were in a post-racial society or whatever it was, has proven to be very, uh, you know, incorrect. And Tarantino was onto that pretty fast. You know, he was he was onto that. You know, Django Unchained is a an Obama era movie, and and Hateful Eight, you know, was just before Trump, and he kind of, I think, he saw the shifts that were going on. He saw this sort of ugliness that was roiling underneath the surface of the culture, and it was just waiting to pounce out. And uh, I think Django's kind of starts his exploration of that, and then Hateful Eight is just a flat out three hour masterpiece about everything that divides people along racial and economic lines in America. Who's that stumbling around in the dark? State your business or prepare to get winged. Calm yourselves, gentlemen. I mean you no harm. I'm simply a fellow weary traveler. Whoa. Good cold evening, gentlemen. I'm looking for a pair of slave traders that go by the name of the Speck Brothers. Might that be you? Who wants to know? Well, I do. I'm Dr. King Schultz. This is my horse, Fritz. What kind of doctor? Dentist. 
Now, are you the Speck Brothers? And did you purchase those men at the Greenville slave auction? So what? So I wish to parlay with you. Speak English. Oh, I'm sorry. Please forgive me. It is a second language. Now, amongst your inventory, I've been led to believe, is a specimen I'm keen to acquire. Hello, you poor devils. Is there one amongst you who was formerly a resident of the Karukan Plantation? I'm from the Karukan Plantation. Who said that? What's your name? Exactly the one I'm looking for. That's where I wanted to, I wanted to get to the Hateful Eight because by the time Hateful Eight comes out, you and I had been introduced to each other. You had been on the show a couple times, and with Hateful Eight, I remember you being the first person I reached out to because you had mentioned that you were getting you were going to you know one of these. I don't know was it was it the Roadshow seventy millimeter screening or you got to see a seventy yeah. millimeter screening of the film and. It wasn't, was it you that told me there was some issues with the screening, or is this a different story? Uh, I don't think I had – I saw it in 70 millimeter a couple of times, and I actually didn't have any issues okay. with All that right. one. I had some with Interstellar when that one came That's, out. You know but, what? Uh, That's what it is. I'm mixing those two up. I remember yeah, you telling me. Yeah, but no, Hateful Eight. Yeah, Hateful Eight I saw for the first time at an advanced screening at um, at the Academy. I saw the 70 millimeter Roadshow uh, edition and, and sat next to Macaulay Culkin, which was very strange. But uh, oh, anyway, oh, oh, but yeah, okay. interesting. <laughs> so, all right, so hateful eight on paper. If if you were to describe to somebody with who without showing them one frame of the film, that hateful eight is essentially going to be eight people trapped inside a cabin for three hours. It it does it doesn't really compute. It doesn't seem to me like that would be sounds very appealing. Yet it is the Tarantino film I have seen the most. Mm-hmm. And it is the one, it's the longest Tarantino film, and yet it's the one that moves, I think, with the fastest pace. So yeah. I wonder if you could just tell me, we talk about ambitious films. To set eight people in a single location for almost three hours, that's ambitious in its own right. So talk a little bit right. about The Hateful Eight and your first experience seeing the film and your thoughts on the movie. You never gave your name, sir. John Ruth. Are you a lawman? I'm taking her to the law. You're a bounty hunter. That's right, Buster. Do you have a warrant? Of course I do. May I see it? Why? Uh, You're supposed to produce it upon request. How am I supposed to know you're not a villain? Kidnapping this woman without a warrant in your possession. What's your name, Buster? Well, it certainly isn't Buster. It's Oswaldo Mowbray. Oswaldo? Yes. Well, I got my warrant, Oswaldo.
I take it to a Daisy Dome again? Yeah, it's fair. It says here, dead or alive. Yeah, it does. Well, transporting a desperate, hostile prisoner such as her, it sounds like hard work. Wouldn't transporting her be easier if she were dead? Well, no one said the job was supposed to be easy. And why is her hanging proper so important to you? Let's just say I don't like cheating a hangman. He gotta make a living, too. Well, I appreciate that. Allow me to properly introduce myself. I'm Oswaldo Mowbray, the hangman in these parts. <laughs> La-dee-da. Yeah, it's like I brought you a customer. That's how it would appear. You ever spent two days or more locked up with one of your customers before? I can't say I have. Don't talk to my prisoner. I talk to my prisoner. That's it. You got it? I got it. <laughs> Jolly good. You got anything in here besides coffee that can help warm us up? No, the bar is open. Follow-moi. Yeah, I agree. It is. It is. It's, it's, very, it's a very interesting... You know, that movie, again, going back to this whole thing of like how he puts together tones that don't belong together. Hateful Eight, he's kind of combining a form with a content that don't seem like they would go together. Like he's doing this kind of chamber play, but he's shooting it in 70 millimeter. It's he's doing it at like the length and style of Lawrence of Arabia, you know, which is, is something that is seems counterintuitive, but uh, I think works really well. And I mean, hateful eight is obviously, you know, it's kind of an interesting companion piece to reservoir dogs, which is another movie. that's basically a bunch of people in a, t in, a in a location they can't leave with tensions rising the whole time. And I mean, I think, I think if you look at those two movies, you know, you really get a sense of how much Tarantino loves John Carpenter's The Thing. Cause I think that's sort of the key influence on both of those movies. And then by the time of Hateful Eight, he actually gets to use Kurt Russell, um, and uses some music cues from John Carpenter's The Thing in, uh, in that movie. But yeah, I think structurally that movie is quite a marvelous feat of, of writing, and I'm not even 100% sure I can explain how he does it, but it is, it is the way he figures out to kind of keep those turns going that he can sustain for three hours. To me, that movie never feels static, and part of it is just his sheer skill as a visual storyteller. I mean, he's very, very, I think he's actually, because he's such a great writer, I think he's actually weirdly slightly underrated as a director. I think people don't appreciate just how skilled he is at knowing where to put the camera and where to put people in the frame to kind of keep it interesting and to sort of emphasize what he wants emphasized. I mean, you always in a Tarantino movie are looking at exactly what you're supposed to be looking at. And there's, um, there's actually a great book that I would kind of recommend to people who are interested in breaking down what he does a little bit. There's this book called shoot like Tarantino by a guy named Christopher Kenworthy, who's a filmmaker who sort of, he does this whole series of books with directors where he breaks down their style and, 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 and it sounds a little like sort of gimmicky or something like shoot like Tarantino, shoot like Scorsese, but actually they're really great books. And he really does a beautiful job of showing how Tarantino makes the decisions he makes and why. And, you know, hateful eight, I think just the combination of all those things. And obviously it helps when you cast it as perfectly as he cast that movie. I mean, I think that can't be overstated that, you know, different actors other than Kurt Russell and Jennifer Jason Lee being handcuffed in together in that movie might make it harder to watch it for three hours. But, um, you know, with them 
and Sam Jackson and Walton Goggins and everybody else. I think it's just a spectacularly entertaining movie. But again, I think also a movie that kind of is getting at things about, you know, again, about race. And it's, it's a very, it's, it's kind of got some of Django's ugliness to it, but it's also much, it's also very funny. I mean, it's kind of this funny comedy of manners and, um, you know, I thought it was, I thought it was a great, you know, sort of speaking to your point about the sort of constricted setting, it's an interesting movie. It's an interesting case study in how you can do something simple and that, and yet like within that simple framework, you can really do something complex that, like you say, just rewards repeat viewings. Cause I see it. It's one of those movies. Uh, if, if I don't flip channels a lot, but if I am flipping channels, waiting for something, if I come across that movie on cable, I will always watch it, whatever point in the movie it's in. And it's, it's actually the only movie I think I would say that about. Yeah, no, I would agree with you on that one. So we know now for sure that he is directing a new movie coming out next year called Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, which yeah. from what I understand, and correct me if I'm wrong, is is not about the Sharon Tate murders, but it's mm-hmm. it's set in that time period and Margot Robbie plays Sharon Tate, but... You know, I have I have purposely haven't read a lot about it because I I want to yeah. I want to go in as as you know, uh, not knowing as much as possible. But what what do we know about this film? What are your anticipations? The cast is looking fantastic, and there is some rumor, of course, that he only wants to do one or two more movies and then hang and then hang it up. So, what are your thoughts? Yeah, well, that first of all, to address the later point, I never trust directors who say they're gonna do that. You know, they're gonna retire or whatever like that. I I think Tarantino. I know he's, he, he always says that he has this thing about where he thinks that directors, as they get older, they get worse and he doesn't want to do that. Uh, I think he's going to be somebody you're going to have to cry the camera out of his dead hands is my guess. He's going to be a John Huston. I'll, I, I will be very shocked if he ever stops making movies. But uh, yeah, I don't know a ton about it either, except for the cast, because I like you. I, I prefer to go into stuff not wanting to know as much about it, especially Tarantino's stuff, because the sense of discovery is so much part of the appeal. Like I'm, I'm mystified by how every time Tarantino makes a movie, if the script leaks online, I'm mystified by people who want to read it. I mean, I just would never want to look at that before I see the movie. But, um, so I don't know any more about it than you do really, except for the, the cast is unbelievable. I mean, he's got a lot of his regulars, but then he's also got Al Pacino and Burt Reynolds and you know, all these great people. I, I have actually, um, I've walked by some of the sets for it because I live just like a half block north of, of Hollywood Boulevard. And a couple of weeks ago, he transformed part of Hollywood Boulevard into like Hollywood Boulevard of the late sixties. And so they had like a, they, they had redecorated all the street signs and stuff. And it was really cool. And so, um, so I got to kind of go walk down and, and look at the, the sets and everything. I didn't really bother going when they were actually filming because I figured it would be a madhouse. But, um, but yeah, I mean, I'm obviously very excited for it. All I know is it's supposedly kind of a Pulp Fiction-esque ensemble story set in that era. And, uh, you know, with that cast and everything, I mean, I'm, I'm pretty, I'm pretty excited for it, but, but yeah, like you, I'm trying to avoid reading too much before I see it. Now, it's interesting you brought up the point about the the script leaking online, and and I I completely forgot to bring this up. Just mentioning the hateful eight that 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 script did leak online, and he did cancel that project initially. Am I is that mm-hmm. from what I understand? And then he made some changes to it, or or what, what yeah. do you know about that? Yeah, I mean that's basically the story. Is it it leaked online, and he kind of got upset about it, and um, 
it's, you know, I don't think he ever was really not going to make the movie. I mean, he claimed that, but I think he was just kind of, I think he was just angry that the script didn't leak. And just, I don't know. He thought he was punishing everyone if he didn't make the movie. But, uh, but yeah, I, I don't, uh, I don't know that he ever really intended. He spends so long on these scripts. It's hard for me to imagine that any of them he would not end up shooting, you know, if given the opportunity. Now, just a couple more things before we wrap this up. There is some, some chatter up going on right now that he is interested in doing a Star Trek movie, but a Tarantino Star Trek movie. Uh, can can Tarantino do a PG thirteen film? Would a studio back him financially for an R rated Star Trek film? I mean, with that, with that, well, IP? I, what I, according to what I read, and I could be I never, you never know with this stuff what's true. I mean, because according to what I read, the idea is that it would be R rated. Um, you know, and probably I don't, you know, I don't know. I think it would depend. You know, I think they would be smart to back him in a way. I think a Tarantino rated Star Trek movie would probably be pretty successful because I think you would. You'd get a convergence of enough nerds that, you know, between those two factors, Tarantino and Star Trek, would probably be successful. Although I get that they also think they have to protect the brand or whatever. So I don't, and I don't know what's, um, I have no idea what he has in mind. It's kind of one of those things I'll be surprised if it actually happens. Cause, you know, you hear these, these rumors over the years, like he, you know, he, that he's like meeting on doing a James Bond movie or Man from Uncle or whatever. And, he never ends up doing those, and, and it, it sort of seems unlikely to me that he would ever want to take the amount of time he takes to make a movie. It seems unlikely to me that he would want to do it to play in someone else's universe. I think he, you know, but, but I know he does like Star Trek, so you never know. Okay. Now, I earlier today I put out a tweet uh, about two hours before you and I started chatting where I just asked people if they could rank their favorite Tarantino films. And these are interesting lists because last week uh, I had Mike Gallagher from the Amateur Autorist podcast on, and we, we were asking people to rank their, their Star Wars films. And, and in the case of Tarantino films, there's, there's not really a bad one in the group. So it's not really ranking worst, uh, best to worst. It's more or less, you know, which ones do you enjoy the most? And so that's, that's how I always want to perceive most of these lists. But I'll, I'll turn it over to you. Like you, you mentioned Django would probably be his best film. Is it your favorite of his films as of right now? And, and I also understand that as time goes by, you know, feelings change and, and you, you can, you can have a different opinion. Yeah. I mean, it changes all the time. I mean, I would say that, you know, I think that these last three movies he's done, Inglorious Bastards, Django and Hateful Eight, I do think represent a sort of new level to his, greatness you know and so um but in terms of you know the my favorite you know and what i i would i mean i'd probably again if pressed if i was going to a desert island django is probably the one i would take with me but uh but it changes all the time i mean uh, there have been when when they they did that series that i talked about where i went and saw all of his movies every friday night at midnight for a couple months uh at that time jackie brown was my favorite when i saw them all that was the one i left feeling like this is my favorite for sure and then i watched it again this week actually preparing for this and still love it. Absolutely. But I don't know that I would say it's my favorite. I mean, I actually, there are days when I might say if, if, if you could, if you take the kill bills together, that can be my favorite. It, it really depends on what day you catch me on. Because I, again, he's one of those directors who I feel like they're pretty much all great and just at different levels. I mean, I would say probably death proof is my least favorite. I think that one I, I'm not, as into as the other ones. That's probably the one I revisit the least. But, um, 
Well, you know, but the rest, they're all, it's, it's like asking a parent to choose their favorite sure. child. Sure. Well, I'm going to just go through a couple of these real quick. I wasn't expecting to get, I got like over 20 just in the first hour. So, but there's, there, I was going through uh-huh. this list before you and I started recording and I found a really unique pattern with the, out of these 20 plus replies, the hateful eight is at the bottom of almost every one of these lists from, mm-hmm. from listeners out there. And what's interesting is I, I tend to put the hateful eight at the top of my list is as, mm-hmm. because I, I base that on watchability. And if it's the mm-hmm. one that I can watch the most and seem to have the most fun with, then I, I, I have to say that's probably my favorite Quentin Tarantino film. That's of course subject to change. But just to go through a couple, just a couple of these lists, um, let's see, actually Mike, who you chatted with a few weeks ago from Amateur Tours, he's got Glorious Bastards 1, Pulp Fiction 2, Reservoir Dogs 3, Django 4, The Kill Bills 5 and 6, Jackie Brown, The Hateful Eight, and Death Proof. Yeah, you know what? Death Proof makes it on the bottom of the list, a lot of these as well. I'm just going to mm-hmm. read a couple of these because it would just take forever, so... Let me just see here. Casey Stigman just put true romance with an asterisk at the top. He put that at the top of this list. Like, okay. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Let me ask you this. What do you, th- what do you think a true romance directed by Tarantino would have been like? Do you think we would have got a radically different film, even in the non-chronological well, order? Yeah. I mean, we would have, it would have been, it would have been very different for a couple of reasons. One is yes, it would have been not in chronological order Two, uh, it would have had an unhappy ending. They would have killed off Christian Slater because his character dies in the script that Tarantino wrote. And that was a fight between him and Tony Scott uh, was Tony Scott wanted him to live. So uh, it would have been different in those ways. And it just would have been different stylistically because you really uh, and I like Tony Scott, but you cannot get two more di- different directors than Tony Scott and Quentin Tarantino stylistically. I mean, Tarantino loves long, elegantly choreographed takes. Tony Scott you, you, it's rare that you get a shot that lasts more than four or five seconds. You know, it's like cut, 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 cut. You know, if you think of, think about the way Tarantino shoots dialogue scenes versus the way Tony Scott shoots dialogue, I mean, it's just completely a different style. So I think it would have been a very different movie. I don't know that it would have been better or worse. I mean, I actually really love True Romance, and I think that I think it's kind of cool to see Tarantino's voice filtered through that style. I mean, I think sometimes that can be interesting you know so i i love it but i definitely think it would have been uh just almost entirely different movie okay and then uh one of the users hungry bogart it's got pulp fiction reservoir dogs and glorious bastards kill bill Django, kill bill jackie brown the hateful eight and death proof a lot of the people on these lists here are really echoing what you said about death proof it 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 <laughs> it, it really does seem to make the bottom of the list here on most of these and, and don't get me wrong like i like it a lot i mean to say it's my least favorite tarantino and, and i should say i'm not including four rooms i guess i always forget I, somehow I, I just have blocked four rooms from my memory because that's obviously the worst. There's no no doubt about it. But but in terms of Hateful Eight, I, my theory about that is about why that shows up lowest on people's lists is I think that with as filmmakers accumulate a filmography and accumulate a following, invariably in their time, the most recent one is undervalued because – you know, and this, this used to happen with Kubrick all the time. And I think with Tarantino, it's like people are all, you know, Reservoir Dogs and Pulp Fiction. Well, they've lived with those longer. They saw them when they were younger. They have more of a nostalgic attachment to them than they have to Hateful Eight, which they see. And it's like, it's like when people rank the Star Wars movies or whatever. The ones that, the, the, the most recent ones almost never are going to appear at the top. And, and I think, you know, it's like with Kubrick. I think I, I will go to my grave. Uh, I will 
fight anyone in a parking lot over the question of whether or not Eyes Wide Shut is a masterpiece. I mean, Eyes Wide Shut is one of the best movies Kubrick ever made, period. But Kubrick had this thing where once he became established and became a big director, every movie he made, you know, was like Clockwork Orange. Oh, it's, you know, it's okay, but it's no 2001. Barry Lyndon. Ah, it's okay, but it's no Clockwork Orange. <laughs> Shining. Eh, it's all right, but it's no Barry Lyndon. Like, that went on his entire career. And I think Tarantino, I think there is a sort of, again, I just think with like Eightful Eight, it's too recent. They haven't lived with it. it. It can't compete in a way in people's minds with Pulp Fiction because they've lived with Pulp Fiction so much longer. And again, I think people do, especially film nerds, I think uh, there is a lot of nostalgia and stuff like that that gets wrapped up in this stuff. I mean, I think that people do, I, I don't know the people, and, they, and there's no reason they should separate their childhood nostalgia from their reactions to movies. But I think when people say, they think Pulp Fiction is better than Hateful Eight. What they're really saying is, well, I saw Pulp Fiction when I was 14 and was like wide open to the world and had never seen anything like that. You know, and then by the time they get to Hateful Eight, they're more, you know, it's, it's, it's never going to, it's not going to have that same effect on them. And like, to me, that doesn't matter. Like, I don't, I'm not as much into that kind of fetishization of movies and nostalgia and all that kind of stuff. So, but, but that's like my theory as to why people, I, I, I think, I think when the end, it, you know, 10, 15 years from now, if you have people make those lists, I suspect Hateful Eight will have risen considerably. Okay. I'm going to read one more. Just uh, this one's from Cinema Recall, which is a podcast that I was uh, did a guest spot on last summer. He said, it's hard to rank Quentin Tarantino movies from favorite to least, but here are mine. Pulp Fiction, he put Kill Bill, he put in parentheses, it's one movie just split up into two. But you make an interesting point, though, with the the actual cut of the film where a crucial line is taken out, which changes the entire dynamic of the film. Uh, Inglorious Bastards, Jackie Brown, True Romance, Reservoir Dogs, Death Proof, Django Unchained, well, and The Hateful Eight. It's interesting. All right. Well, Jim, and, and for, I'm sorry, for those, for everybody that, that tweeted me all these ones, I'm sorry I don't have time to read all of these on here, but uh, they're all very, very interesting, and uh, I appreciate everybody taking the time to send those out to me. So... Jim, what have you been working on lately? What uh, what can people check out? That you've been doing some more commentaries that are available. Uh, yeah, I'm trying to think what the most. Uh, there's probably the one that people would enjoy the most is I, I did a commentary on a new a Blu-ray of uh, this great '80s action movie, The Soldier, that's kind of unsung, um, directed by James Glickenhaus, and they just put it out from 1982, and they just put it out on Blu-ray, and I did a commentary track for that. Um, and I thought that my two newest ones are actually for a couple of uh, of movies from the night, a couple of thrillers from the nineties that I think are kind of underrated. One is the tie that binds, which was the directorial debut of Wesley Strick, the screenwriter of, uh, Cape fear. And he and I did a commentary track together on that Blu-ray, which comes out in a week or two. Uh, and then I also did one on another nineties thriller called rich man's wife, uh, which will come out the same day as tie to find. So there's those. And then, you know, my, the movies I directed trouble with the truth and bad reputation still on Amazon streaming on Amazon prime and all that. So, uh, if people want to check those out, that's always uh, much appreciated. And your social media, if people want to follow you or check out your website? Yeah, the, the website's uh, jimhemphillfilms.com, and my Twitter is at Jimmy Hemphill. Excellent. All right, well, Jim, it is always a pleasure and an honor to have you on the show. Uh, I always learn so much every time you and I have these conversations. This will be the fourth Icons episode that we've done. I know we've got many more that we've discussed and I'm, I'm hoping to to continue this series going because it gets just phenomenal feedback 
So thank you again so much for being on the show. It, it just means the world to me. So thank you, Jim. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. And my name is Dana Buckler, and thank you so much for listening. The How Is This Movie podcast is produced by Dana Buckler for Hidden Productions located in Ocala, Florida. Please follow the podcast on Twitter and Instagram at How Is This Movie. Like our Facebook page at facebook.com slash How Is This Movie. Of course, you can always email the show with questions or comments at hitmpodcast at gmail.com. And finally, to become a monthly supporter of this podcast and gain instant access to bonus episodes not available anywhere else, go to patreon.com slash How Is This Movie. You'll find all the links to our social media in this episode's show notes.